Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Mark de Battista on the topic, Our Lady at the Heart of the Liturgy. This May 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Mark is a former assistant priest at St. Paul's Parish Camden and is now studying at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Wonderful. Well, it's been, uh, I think, about six years since I last had an opportunity to speak to Lumen Verum, so it's good to be back. I've had a few years overseas, and I, uh, yeah, I've been back in the country now for just over a year, so it's great to be with you. I do apologize for running a little bit late, because I, being the Feast of the Sacred Heart, I had a Mass in the parish, and I had to attend to the immediate flock first before I could go to the extended flock of Lumen Verum. And that was at 6.30 and so forth. So tonight's talk is uh, Our Lady at the Heart of the Liturgy. And really, I just want to drive home one main point. And I'm going to say this at the beginning so that it doesn't get lost in the other details. Really, that the, the church does nothing by accident. And the liturgy is the center of what she does in worshipping the Trinity through the person of Jesus Christ. And Our Lady is just at the heart of, of her worship. So Christ is the center of her liturgical worship, and we see that Our Lady is at the center of this. And my thesis is this, that this is not just a way of honoring her because she's such a worthy candidate, and because she's so holy and sinless and so forth, but because the Church wants to make of her life a catechesis for us of discipleship. The Church wants to give us of her life through the liturgy, the way she peppers her feasts, to say, if you want a disciple whom you could imitate, you've got all the saints, and there are about four and a half thousand saints or something, probably more actually since John Paul finished, uh, but uh, it, it's, uh, it tells us that of all of them, the greatest is Our Lady, no surprise there, we know that, but that if you want a real catechesis of discipleship, imitate her through her feast days especially, learn what you can, and you'll be on the way to uh, following Christ very closely. The little blurb about this talk, I know it talked about, we'll look at the Feast of Our Lady in the general Roman calendar, and then especially in a group of masses which the Holy See came out with only as recent as 1990. When I started looking at things more closely, however, preparing the talk, I realized it's just such a wealth of material that... I'm actually just going to stick myself, for the, for the most part, to the masses in the general calendar, because that's what we're going to be exposed to most readily and most generously, and I will uh, sort of minimally touch on the masses for Our Lady. So, just what happened in, in 1990? Well, the Holy See, through its Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, the Holy See has all various departments. It has congregations, it has pontifical councils since Pope Paul VI, and, and then it has um, various, uh, well, other groups as well. I'm, I'm trying to think what their names are, but all of them have different roles to do. The, the congregations are the most important. So you've got the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. You've got the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, formerly known as the Congregation for Rights. You have the Congregation for Bishops, Congregation for the Clergy, Congregation for Evangelization, and their job is to do various things, and that's the most exalted thing, the most important of things. And then you had you have the next level down, which is basically the Pontifical Councils. You've got the Pontifical Council for the Family, Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, Pontifical Council for the Laity, blah, 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 right? A whole lot of groups. And... And then um, there's special commissions and groups, that international commissions that are established by the various popes to do various things. So there's the International um, Theological Commission, there's the International Pontifical Biblical Commission, and <clears throat> the things that come out from the congregations and from the Pontifical Councils are magisterium. So they're official teaching documents of the Church. Things that come out from commissions generally are not, unless by some sort of exception the Pope raises them. So, what did the 
the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments do in 1990. They collected a whole lot of masses which over the centuries had developed to honor the Mother of God under various titles and put them all together in a book. What a good idea, you know, it's a great thing. But as good as that sounds, and you might say as obvious as that sounds, sometimes these things just don't happen. For example, I mean, the most, you might say, famous case is the Code of Canon Law. Do you know when the first Code of Canon Law was uh, was first developed? You can't talk, you can't talk. I mean, so, does anyone else want to have a go? When was the first Code of Canon Law ever put together? 750. Okay, 750. I, I wish! I wish it were that early. It was actually put together by, not Pius X, by, uh, actually it may have been Pius X, in 1917. Uh, in 1917. So Pius, uh, Leo XIII died in 1903, and then St. Pius X, um, which I don't know if he's pontificate. Yeah, he put it together. There, there was the first code in the, in the Latin rite, and the Eastern rite didn't have one until uh, 1919 or something like that. It was quite late. So what happened? There's all sorts of law all over the place, but it was never codified. It was never put together under a universal umbrella. And, and so too with the masses. So then you had the 1917 Code of Canon Law, and then another one, 1983, to update it with the modifications introduced from the Second Vatican Council, and then the Eastern Rites had their um, code, I, I'm not sure, was it 1990, their, their code? So, the same thing has been done, essentially, for the Masses for Our Lady. And what's so beautiful about them, because they, it's because they, and it's by no means an exhaustive compilation, but at least now, you've got in a lectionary and in a sacramentary, so the Missal version, you've got a beautiful collection of Masses for Our Lady, which priests can use to celebrate at any time that the liturgy allows it. Now in the liturgy, you've got all different ranks of feasts, and I forgot to bring an order with me, but if I said what's an order, an order is that little book that every parish church should have in the sacristy, which tells the priest how, or the bishop, how to celebrate the liturgy. So what feast day it is, what rank of feast it is, color of the vestments, and the divine office, what should be prayed for that day. So too, in the ranks of feasts, you've got, I'm just going to quickly do this because I'm going to refer to them constantly, and draw meaning from the ranks of the feasts that Our Lady gives to Marian feasts, to tell us of the importance of those feasts, and the kind of lessons that we should in fact draw from that feast being a solemnity, as opposed to being a memoria, or an optional memoria. All of these feasts can be celebrated whenever there is what we call a ferial day, which is the means there's no feast whatsoever. It's the lowest rank of feast. Then you have optional memorias, is the next level up. Then you have obligatory memorias. Then you have feast days. Then you have solemnities. Today, for example, the Feast of the Sacred Heart is a solemnity. Then you have solemnities with obligation. Okay, so solemnities without obligation and solemnities with obligation. In other words, we have to go to Mass on those days. Okay, so here they are again. You have the, the no feast day. So that's just the standard weekdays of ordinary time. They're the lowest rung in the ladder. Then you have optional memorials, obligatory memorials, feasts, solemnities without obligation, and solemnities with obligation. These can be celebrated on any feast, either when there's no feast at all, or when there's an optional memoria, or in some cases where there's an obligatory memoria, and in more rarer cases where there is an actual feast. But you can't do it, you can't celebrate them when there is a, a solemnity without, with or without obligation. And in order to be able to celebrate these feasts, with, uh, on a feast day, for example, so all the apostles generally ask, uh, it's, it's a feast day. Tomorrow, the Feast of the Visitation of Our Lady is classified as, a, has a ranking of a feast. 
to be able to, to exchange that or replace that with one of these, Marian feast for a Marian feast, so it's a bad example. But let's say it was, uh, what's another feast? The feast of um, something else that's a feast. Uh, sorry? Oh, that's a Marian feast. A non-Marian feast. That's, well, the apostles. So St. Simon and Jude, the 28th of November, I think it is. To replace that with a Marian feast that you know, has no particular necessity. It really needs to be the bishop or the local ordinary to give permission to celebrate that. Anyway, that's just to give you a kind of a broad scheme of things of when these masses can be celebrated. So, it's, and the church does this in her wisdom. Since the liturgy is the central act of what she does, the central act of worship, then she governs that very, very tightly and, and rightly so. Because the church wants to give us a, a, a catechesis through her liturgy. And if she says, well, look, these collection of masses can be just said anytime willy-nilly, you might have a priest who is very devoted to Our Lady and says, okay, well, I'm just going to have the married priests all the time, you know? And that's a beautiful thing. But the church is saying, actually, there's also a whole lot of other models for us to be holy, uh, namely the, the apostles and, and the other saints. And we need them as well. Even though Our Lady is the greatest and the best example, and we gain a huge amount from imitating her, nevertheless, we gain a, a, a lot also from the others, because we're not sinless, and the, uh, the saints themselves were not sinless. So, in a sense, there's a, a connection there, which we don't have with Our Lady. So what I hope to do, I'm just going to read through them, and then I'm going to leave them. I'll leave these here, you can have a look at them after, after the talk. And, and then I'm going to go into the general calendar. So, they're divided into five blocks, or five seasons. You've got the Advent season, and then the Christmas season. You've got Masses for the Lenten season, and the Easter season. And then you've got Masses in Ordinary Time. And here they are. In the Advent season, we've got the Blessed Virgin Mary, Chosen Daughter of Israel the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Annunciation of the Lord. The Visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's, that's the smallest one for the Advent season. Then in the Christmas season, we've got uh, six Masses. Holy Mary, Mother of God. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Saviour. The Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Epiphany of the Lord. The Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Presentation of the Lord. Our Lady of Nazareth, Our Lady of Cana. So I hope that some of these you've never heard before because it just shows the, the richness and different aspects under which we can look at Our Lady and uh, see her the beauty of who she is. Then we go to the Lenten season. We've got five Masses in this collection of Masses for the Lenten season. Holy Mary, Disciple of the Lord. The Blessed Virgin of Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross, number one. The Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross, number two. It's beautiful, isn't it? To kind of look at Our Lady as, as the one watch, watching at the foot of the cross and what we can take for that for ourselves as someone who stands watching at the cross. Do we stand watching at the cross or do we run away from the cross? Which is what many people do. The commending, the commending of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Reconciliation. And then in the Easter season, we've got the Blessed Virgin, four of them, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Resurrection of the Lord, Holy Mary, Fountain of Light and Life, Our Lady of the Cynicle. Our Lady is the one who waits with the Apostles for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So she teaches us there. When we're in anticipation of some great things, some great news in our lives, Again, to turn to Our Lady as Our Lady of the Cynical. And then fourthly, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Queen of Apostles. We look then to the Masses for Ordinary Time. We've got here three sections. And one, two, three, four, five, six, ten, eleven section. I'm just going to read through them just so I can say that I've actually read them out to you. But we just can't delve into them all. Holy Mary, Mother of the Lord. Holy Mary, the new Eve. The holy name of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Incidentally, only since the 2002 revision of the, of the Roman Missal, 
it's been introduced now into the general calendar on the 12th of September, the holy name of Mary. Holy Mary, handmaid of the Lord. The Blessed Virgin Mary, temple of the Lord. The Blessed Virgin Mary, seat of wisdom. The Blessed Virgin Mary, image and mother of the church. One. Blessed Virgin Mary, image and mother of the church. Two. And the same one, three. So there's three of those. The Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which ordinarily would be celebrated tomorrow, but it's replaced this year because it, tomorrow it clashes with the Feast of the Visitation, which is classified as a feast, and whereas the Immaculate Heart of Mary is only an optional memoria. Uh, I swear, actually, no, it's an optional memoria. Yeah, I think it's only an optional memoria. Let me just double-check that. It's either an optional memoria or a memoria, or an obligatory memoria, but it's not... Um, so... The church is teaching us something in the visitation that's more important than the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And we can talk about that if time allows. Uh, anyway, I don't have time to look this up, but it's probably an optional memorial. Then we've got the Blessed Virgin Mary, Queen of all creation. Section 2, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother and Mediatrix of Grace. In recent years, we've heard a lot about this. The Our Lady is Mediatrix of All Grace, Corridentrix and Advocate. And some cardinals and bishops uh, have certainly petitioned Pope John Paul II, when he was still alive, to declare a, another dogma, a fifth Marian dogma. And some cardinals and bishops have also been petitioning now Pope Benedict to do the same. We'll see what happens. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Fountain of Salvation. Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother and Teacher, are in the Spirit. Mother and Teacher in the Spirit. We pray to her as spouse of the Holy Spirit. She's a teacher in the ways of the Spirit. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Good Counsel. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Cause of Our Joy. I feel like I'm reading these uh, titles out to you. It's like the Gospel of uh, the, what do you call it, of the... Um, the genealogy of Jesus, you know. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. So I apologize if it seems a bit dull, but at least you need to hear them. The Blessed Virgin Mary, pillar of faith. The Blessed Virgin Mary, mother of fairest love. The title of Our Lady is pure. The Blessed Virgin Mary, mother of divine hope. And Holy Mary, mother of unity. That's section two. Then section three, we've got another... Uh, eight masses, so there were eight, uh, nine masses in section two. So Holy Mary now, section three, Holy Mary, Queen and Mother of Mercy, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Divine Providence, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Consolation. It's great that Consolation can, uh, is a child, and Our Lady is a mother of this. She gives birth to Consolation through her intercession for us, through her motherliness. Her mothering of us gives birth to consolation within us, within her children. And mothers do this. They console their children. The Blessed Virgin Mary, help of Christians. She's our patroness in Australia, 24th of May. Our Lady of Ransom. The Blessed Virgin Mary, help of the sick. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Queen of Peace. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Gate of Heaven. And each of the prefaces, in fact, well, just sorry, before the actual Mass starts, there's a lovely little one-page theological explanation of what Our Lady means under that title. So it's not just, we're not just kind of left to our own devices, or the priests aren't left to their own devices. What on earth can I preach about when I talk about this title? The Church gives us a little bit of a head start there. So, I'll leave those there. That's enough. And feel free to explore them afterwards. But now, let's uh, dive into the <coughs> actual missal itself, the Roman Missal, as it has been updated in, in the 2002, which is the third edition now of the Roman Missal. It should come out in English, all going well, uh, towards the end of next year, but we don't hold our breath with these things, or we might die. So, the... Now, would anyone like to have a guess? So we had 47 masses for Our Lady in those collections, special collection of masses. How many feasts of Our Lady, or whatever rank, do you think exist in the general calendar, the general Roman calendar? Who wants to have a hazard a guess at this one? 
And I'll let him, Robert, you can, you can play in this one too. So, but uh, you can each. Who says about nine? He said eight or ten. Who says about fifteen? And who says twenty-three? Okay, well, they're about eighteen. About eighteen. Here they are. I'll read through them and then comment a little bit on on each of them and, and try to join some dots. First of January, solemnity of Mary, Mother of God which ordinarily is a holy day of obligation, but the Code of Canon Law has placed it under the banner of the Episcopal Conference, uh, so they can decide whether it's a holy day of obligation for a particular region. In Australia, they've decided that it's not a holy day of obligation. Question. Uh, in America, it's a holy day of obligation? It is. In America, it is. They've got more holy days of obligation than we do. They, first of January is a holy day of obligation, and I think also... The 1st of November, All Saints Day, is a Holy Day of Obligation. And I think when I first arrived there, the 8th of December, I think the Immaculate Conception also was a Holy Day of Obligation, but it was removed. I, I, it really saddens me when I see this trend, because I think Holy Days of Obligation, and there are about 10 of them altogether. There's the, you know, the Ascension, then there's Peter and Paul, and a couple of other saints that are non-Marian and not, not Christological. They're placed there because our faith is meant to impose upon our life, not to make our life unbearable. It sets us free and makes us joyful. But by having extra days of holy days of obligation peppered throughout the liturgical year, it's meant to teach us that the faith is supposed to impact upon your life. And so what I see, with all due respect, of course, to the to the Episcopal Conference, I, I see a movement there. It's almost like, I remember the reason put forward by the spokesman for the Archdiocese of Sydney at that time was uh, was uh, that people are living busy lives these days and we don't want to make things very difficult. And I'm thinking, well, that's true, but when they're very busy, that's the time when we need to be reminded most that our faith must come first. Anyway, that's just my personal opinion, and I might be mistaken. So, but let's. Uh, so then, what else do we have in the in January? That's it. That's the uh, that's the only Marian uh, feast. Then we have just to throw this in for a mental note. On the third of January, and one of the new feasts is the Most Holy Name of Jesus. So we didn't have a feast for the Holy Name of Jesus. So we now we're going for the name of Jesus and one for Mary. And what you're going to find as I read through this, keep in the back of your mind the parallels between the things that happen to the son and then the things that happen to the mother. Okay, I just want you to see this because that's the reason for their closeness and the church is catechizing us. You know, just as this is important for the son, so is in the mother and, and, and so therefore it should be for us. Because one of the things that the church fathers teach us and the church generally is that Our Lady is a type, a type of the church. So what, what should happen to the church has also happened to her. The feast of uh, the 2nd of February, Presentation of the Lord, but it's also a Marian feast as well, in a sense, because it's the first time we have a, an indication that Our Lady will suffer her spiritual martyrdom. And a sword will pierce your own soul too, we hear from, from the holy man Simeon. On the 11th of, of uh, February, we have Our Lady of Lourdes, that's an optional memorial, so it's the lowest category of feast. Then we have, that's it for February, for March, we move through and we've got the Annunciation, that's a solemnity, 25th of March. Then we move on to April, there's no Marian feasts in April. May, we've got... Our Lady Help of Christians, the 24th, that's more for Australia. That's not actually in the universal calendar. That's not in the Roman calendar, but we'll, we'll count her as one of ours here. And, of course, we have the Feast of the Visitation. That's category of feast, and that's celebrated tomorrow. Then we have the Feast of the Sacred Heart today, normally followed by, which is a solemnity, then normally followed by the Feast of the Immaculate Heart which is only, actually, a, it's only an optional memorial. So I was right before it wasn't a memorial. Oh, no, it wasn't an obligatory memorial. It was an, an optional memorial. Uh, I'll remind me if I forget to say something by the end why uh, they're, um, 
the differences uh, in, in the rank of feast and the proximity or distance between feasts in the calendar, because there's significance in all of this. Then we have June, no Marian feast, a dark month. But there are lots, there are lots of martyrs in, in June. So, and my ordination day as well, so birth of St. John the Baptist, so the 24th of June. And St. Josemaria is an optional memorial, my favorite saint. Uh, right, in July, we have the beautiful feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. That's an optional memorial. And then we have, and this is not a uh, Marian feast, but we have the, the parents of Our Lady, St. Joachim and Anne, on the 26th of July. So there's uh, a connection there, even though it's not a Marian feast. In August... We have the optional memoria of the dedication of St. Mary Major, the oldest church dedicated to Our Lady, oldest Christian church. Although it's interesting, when I was in, uh, where was it now? I think it was in either Chartres Cathedral in France or a church in Rome. But it was a, a, a chapel dedicated to the woman who would conceive. And from pre-Christian times, it's very interesting. It's about, I think, I'm not sure what century BC, but it was something that uh, intrigued me and stayed with me. So, the dedication of the St. Mary Major, sometimes known as Our Lady of the Snow, because the day, on that day in Rome, it snowed. And anyone who knows anything about Rome in August is deadly heat in, uh, they, they call it the Ferragosta, or Ferragosto, which is Ferra, is, what is it, the Ferragosta? Ferragosta. Ferragosto, you know, because uh, Agosto is, is the August and Ferra is the steel. So it's the heat, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the heat that would melt steel is the kind of implication that you're supposed to get. So it snowed on this day. And then in August, we have a number of Marian feasts. We have the Assumption, Solemnity, with obligation, thank God, still in Australia. And then we have the 22nd of of uh, August, the Queenship of Mary, that's an, a memoria, obligatory memoria, and that concludes the Marian Feast for August. September, we have the birthday of Mary, that's a feast, and then we have the Most Holy Name of the Blessed Virgin Mary, optional memoria on the 12th of September. We have Our Lady of Sorrows, straight after, which is a memorial, obligatory memorial, and that's straight after the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross. So again, the Sacred Heart, the Immaculate Heart, a day apart. The Triumph of the Cross, Our Lady of Sorrows, a day apart, but difference in rank. Okay, so we continue along, September, okay, October, Our Lady of the Rosary, Obligatory memoria, the 7th of October. And then we have, and that's it for October. November, All Saints, I suppose can Our Lady in that because it, it covers all the saints, uh, even though it's not explicitly or exclusively her feast. Then we have the presentation of Mary on the 21st of November. Excuse me, and that's an obligatory memoria, and that's that for November, and then we have in December the Immaculate Conception, Solemnity without obligation in Australia, and then we have in the Universal Calendar, it's a Our Lady of Guadalupe, it's an optional memoria on the 12th of December, so uh, that's a feast in the United States, and I think it's a solemnity, if not with obligation, then it's certainly a solemnity in Mexico at the shrine itself. And that's it. So, there's a lot of feasts that we go through. So, now notice the, the parallels. In the church, in the liturgy, the, um, what we find are the most exalted of the Marian feasts. So, the solemnities, or solemnity with obligation, are the feasts that recognize the dogmas that exist in the Catholic Church about Our Lady. Okay, so there are four dogmas that have been defined. So the motherhood of God, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, the Assumption, and the Immaculate Conception. Okay, all those four feasts 
uh, or, or dogmas are recognized by solemnities and or obligatory solemnities uh, or obligatory solemnities yep. now they are what we find operating in the liturgy so uh, we had two examples as I was reading them through of the sacred heart and the immaculate heart and then of the triumph of the cross and of the of the sorrowful heart of Mary or the Our Lady of Sorrows and the reason again the church places them so close together is because the two hearts are so united together Okay, the, the heart of Mary and the heart of Christ are inseparable they're really one heart two people but one heart and the mother and the son they, they beat together although Christ went through the actual crucifixion Our Lady spiritually went through the crucifixion as well and even though this is one of the things I, I mean Our Lady wanted to go through everything that her son went through because she loved him so much and, and that's why we call her co-redemptrix uh, he is the main redeemer but he has allowed her to share in the sufferings that were missing in his own passion just as each one of us as St. Paul tells us in my body I make up for the sufferings that are missing in the sufferings of Christ and he allowed her to share in this in an extraordinary degree so which I think for me this is a purely again theological opinion but there's two thoughts about schools of thought about Our Lady when she ended the course of her natural life did Our Lady die or didn't she die and in the East the, the tradition is that you know the dormition so that Our Lady went into some sleep but the body and soul never separated and then she was assumed into heaven or in the West well there's some who would say no she would have died and <clears throat> and the uh, now some say well hang on a minute death though is only a uh, the, the, the sin or the wages of sin so why should why should she die since she was sinless and, and so therefore the, these proponents would say well she was sleep she went into a, a sleep a dormition and we have icons of the dormition but another argument could be put forward a theological argument to say no in her case she didn't die because it was a punishment for sin because but she died rather because she so wanted to be united with her son in every single thing that he did and so she would have in a sense sought permission let me die let me experience that separation that you experience as well not in a sense because of punishment for my own personal sin because she didn't have any of those but in a sense to bear with you out of love the sins of mankind so that's another opinion and I certainly find that compelling as well and but we're free to believe whatever we like because the church hasn't taught on this area so the, the two hearts the, the, the closeness of these feasts we find it there because our lady, uh, the church is trying to teach us in her liturgy something about the closeness of the two hearts so too the church in the in the triumph of the cross and the feast of our lady of sorrows the church is trying to teach us something about their closeness of these two hearts in suffering they know how to suffer together because they both suffered together but we see the difference in the category of feast the sacred heart is a solemnity the immaculate heart an optional memoria doesn't even have to be now those who have any sense of or sensitivity and, and any attunement to the liturgy would want to celebrate this and really I say this to my brother priests none of whom are here at the moment but uh, and I know a good number of them do in, in Wollongong Diocese thanks be to God she's our patronal feast so the bishop has perpetually moved it to the following Sunday so that everybody in the diocese can actually celebrate their patronal feast but we see also the rank of feast for the feast of the triumph of the cross is, is a feast the Our Lady of Sorrows is only a is, a, is an obligatory memoria okay so and why was the church teaching us here the son comes first Christ is the, is the redeemer Our Lady is the co-redemptrix she's always in his shadow not the other way around and so any Protestant who has any difficulty with Marian doctrine and teaching all we need to do is say listen please study please just study what we do and see how we honor her 
but we don't replace her or even place her on an equal footing with Jesus Christ. We see also how in the church that there are two times, in Greek, there are two words for time. There's chronological time or chronos, and then there is kairos time. Chronological time or chronos is a, is, is the time measured one thing after another, one unit after another. So now it's ten to nine, and you know, in ten minutes it'll be nine o'clock, and then fifteen minutes after that'll be nine fifteen. That's chronological time, just cumulative time. Kairos time, on the other hand, is theological time. Is saying the moment, the importance of the moment in in theological significance, and that's what we're celebrating at that moment. And then she also seems to do other things in the liturgical calendar that don't follow either of these rules. So let me just point out some practical ex um, examples of the chronological time and the parallels that we find between Christological feasts and Marian feasts. We find the birth of Jesus is 25th of December. Okay? When was Jesus conceived? At the Annunciation. When our lady says yes, the Holy Spirit works instantaneously and the humanity of Christ is created. The Son of God becomes incarnate in her womb. When's that? The 25th of March. Hmm, that's interesting. 25th of March, 25th of December. How much time is that? Nine months. Exactly. The church is capturing there the chronological time that passes the normal pregnancy. When is the Immaculate Conception? 8th of December, a solemnity, because one of the dogmas, she's conceived without original sin. When was Our Lady born, when the church celebrated her birthday? 8th of September. Again, the nine-month parallel. You see there? Is everyone following this? It's pretty, should be straightforward anyway, but maybe if we haven't thought of it, um, it's, a, it's a bit new for us. So, we see the chronological time there. We see the, let me think where else we, we find the, um, we find, for instance, the ascension of our Lord into heaven. And then we have the assumption. So that, that event in our Lord's life is paralleled or mirrored in our Lady's life through the assumption. Here there's no chronological or, or kairos time, but there's a significance there. The difference being, though, that our Lord ascends into heaven under his own power. Our Lady is assumed into heaven. She's taken up into heaven, by the, accompanied by the angels. So that's an interesting thing, that Our Lady, she's glorified body, but it's trying to teach us that it's the, the power that takes her up into heaven is the power of Christ. Christ ascends under his own power, which his humanity had because it was united to divinity. We find the glorification of Christ, also mirrored by our, within Our Lady, in the Mother. So, Christ is glorified. When? 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 Which feast in the calendar celebrates his glorification? His being established at the right hand of the Father. Now, the, assumption do, the ascension does this very clearly, but there's another feast which we celebrate particularly the glorification of Christ. The feast of Christ the King. The Christ the King. It's the last Sunday of ordinary time. That Christ is in his humanity, or the glory rather that he had from his resurrection, now shines forth for all to see. In Our Lady, this is parallel through the queenship of Mary, the 22nd of August. So she sent, assumed into heaven on the 15th, and then a week later we, we remember her crowning glory. So those two glorious mysteries of the Rosary. But the parallels there between the mother and the son. What else is uh, yeah? I think I'll leave that side enough there. The parallels you, you'll notice them as, as we as we li live through the unfolding of the liturgical year. The other side of the, the the so that's Chronos time, the Chronos time. Now the Kairos time, the significance. When we celebrate, we've got two feasts for the. The, the, the presentation. We've got the presentation of Jesus, and then we've got the presentation, sorry, this is, I'm jumping ahead. I'll leave that one. 
the, an example of the uh, Kairos time is when we find, for instance, the feast of the first martyr that we celebrate in the liturgy is St. Stephen, which is the 26th of December. Now, the Holy Innocents are celebrated at, on the 28th of December, two days later. Who are actually, though, the first martyrs for Christ? Or the Feast of the Holy Innocents? They were the first martyrs for Christ. But the Church places them second to St. Stephen. Why? Because St. Stephen was a free choice to lay down his life for the Lord. And so it's a greater act of witness, which is where the word martyr comes from, martyreo, from the Greek, to bear witness. It's a greater act of witness to freely lay down your life rather than what the Holy Innocents did, which they certainly did lay down their life, but not by free choice. They suffered for the Lord and are worthy, therefore, of the crown of martyrdom, but... It's a, it's a lesser. So the theologically more important uh, witness to Christ or martyrdom is the martyrdom of St. Stephen. So the, the, the Kairos time is coming into play here. Also, we find it playing out in, in the Feast of the Presentation. The Feast of the Presentation is the 2nd of February. And how many days is that after Christmas? So 25th? 40 days. Great, great mathematics student here. He's uh, looked at it before. So it's, it's 40 days. Now, in the case of the birth of Our Lady, it's the, she's born on the 8th of <coughs> September. When's her presentation? The 21st of November. How many days is that after? What is this one? Sorry? At six, yeah, 50 something, nearly, nearly 60, or maybe even more. It's, it's well and surely over, it's, it's, I think it's over two months actually. I was trying to work it out, uh, this, uh, this evening. But what's going on here? Why is there no parallel? Because in the Feast of the Presentation, the 40 is very significant. First of all, we have the circumcision of Jesus, which is actually on the eighth day, which is also the naming day. But, eight days after Christmas, when you work it out on the calculator, what do you get? The first of January. That collides with the feast of the Mother of God. So, the naming of the child and, uh, and the circumcision are considered a, a lesser reality than the fact that he's been given birth by a human mother. So, Theotokos, God-bearer, uh, trumps it. And, and so, the Mother of God holds holds rank in, in the calendar as a solemnity. Whereas the naming of Jesus celebrated three days later, so close enough on the 3rd of January as a new feast. Because I've often wondered, and I'm glad I only just realized recently that there's a new feast being introduced. See, that it, it fell to the father of a Jewish boy or girl to name the child on the eighth day. The boys also had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so this, this aspect of Christ's life wasn't recognized liturgically. So what we're really having is a, is a development in the liturgy. There's a recognition of another aspect of Christ's life. The mystery of Christ in this new missal that we've got has been more fully expounded. But then, on the 40th day, what happens? The Jewish parents had to take their children, their firstborn, and present them to the Lord. And, you know, you could offer various things. If you were wealthy, you could offer a lamb or, a, or something significant. Or if you were from a poor family, two small pigeons, which is what the Holy Family had to offer. But the, and, and, of course, the, the 40 is hugely significant. It's, uh, I mean, the 40 days in the wilderness uh, of Christ. But before, in the Old Testament, 40 years in the desert, Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, twice. We have the, the spies who go into the land of Canaan. They go there for 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, it's based on this that God says, ha, ah, you are in that promised land that I gave you for 40 days and 40 nights. You will spend a year in the desert for every one of those days you're in there. Because remember, the 12 spies come back 
and they give a bad report, all except two, Caleb and Joshua, who say, no, it's a great land, it's a wonderful land, God's given it to us, we should go and take it. The other ten say, ah, no, no, I don't like it at all. And so God says, fine, you don't like my gifts, you're going to scoff at me, you'll spend 40 years. So that's where the idea of the 40 in the desert, 40 years in the desert comes, because they'd spent 40 days and nights in the promised land, looking at it, and then say, huh, God, your beautiful meal is not good enough for us. And what else do we find the 40? 40 also had the significance of a fullness of time, a generation. So it's very rich. So, on the 2nd of February, with the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord in the Temple, what do we find? The first mention of the crucifixion and what's coming. So, the 40 concludes, the in the old calendar, it concludes the Christmas season. Now, that's maybe in, in the third Roman Missal that we get, or the fourth Roman Missal that we get, that will be somehow reintegrated. But it, it concluded the, it concluded the, um, the, the, East, the Christmas season, and then for everything from there on in, looked towards the glorification, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. Why is it, though, that in the case of Our Lady, that her presentation is not 40 days? I mean, you think the, the parallel... You don't want to have a guess before I give you my thoughts on it, which is also another guess. I, I, uh, but I, you don't want to have a guess why there might be a difference between uh, the 40. So there is a theological, it's a Kairos moment, it's a Kairos thing. But let me tell you, in the case of Christ, it's the fulfillment of the law. It was a legal requirement to take your son or daughter and offer them. And God says, every one of my firstborn of man, though, I redeem. So every one of the firstborn of the beasts and so forth, there's a whole list given in the book of Numbers and I think Leviticus, that they had to, um, you know, the first animal or pigeon, you know, you break its neck and you do this, you, you sacrifice it or whatever, but every firstborn of man, I will redeem. So they're following a prescript of the law. Jesus Christ, oh, so, so that's that. In the case of Our Lady, however, what does tradition tell us about her presentation? At the age of three, she of her own free will goes and, and somehow makes her way to the temple or asks to, to be taken to the temple and she makes an offering of herself to God. And some say, well, hang on, how could you do that at the age of three? How could uh, anyone, I mean, three, a child is scarcely learning to talk and they've only just walked a, a couple of years before. Well, when we look at Our Lady, she is sinless. No original sin. And, and so therefore, a, a perfect human nature that's developing. In my experience as a priest, I've seen that children who grow up in the most devout families, who have been baptized, show a remarkable openness and receptivity to the things of faith. It's, it's extraordinary. And frequently, they even reach the age of reason earlier than what I've come to recognize from children from Catholic families, but who aren't really practicing their faith very much, who aren't catechized well. So typically, a lot of children are making their first confession now and first communion at the age of eight or even nine. But I've seen some children, who devout Catholic families, six, they're ready. They already know how to sin. They know the difference between food, ordinary food, and the Eucharist. And so they're ready. Now, if a child from, you know, who's been wounded by original sin, but from devout Catholic family, is able to reach that sort of openness to the mysteries of faith at the age of six, I reckon our lady could have reached it by the age of three. Yes? I only read today that Mary, yes. uh, made a vow. The one who received the revelation of the Sacred Heart, please, please. Yes. Uh, made a vow yes. without really knowing what it meant, chastity, when she was four. Okay. Uh, didn't really understand what yeah. it meant. No, no, I believe it. Some type of promise. Uh, ask me afterwards what I said when I was four, but uh, I'll, I'll say it later with you. But it's, uh, so, so I, I believe that. I really do. I believe it. And now in the case of Our Lady, it was a, see you, yeah, thanks for coming. In the case of Our Lady, it was a free choice. Whereas in Christ, it was a fulfillment of duty being filled out by, by the parents. Okay? And now, let me see what else. I think I'm nearly there. Yeah. We've got five minutes. We've got five minutes? Okay. Let me, uh, a couple more points then. It's, um, 
It always happens when I don't write things down. In the rank of the feast, I said the dogmas are the ones which are which are uh, held the highest, and they're solemnities, either obligatory or non-obligatory uh, solemnities. But another thing I noticed, we've got a whole series of feasts that have come through private revelation. Our Lady of Lourdes on the 11th of, of uh, February. We've got Our Lady of Fatima on the 13th of May. We've got Our Lady of Guadalupe on the 12th of December. And in each of these, in the Roman calendar, it's an optional memoria. And I think there's some significance in this, because all along her history, while the Church has had private revelation come through at various moments, and she's investigated them and so forth, and found them to be worthy, there's something supernatural there, and worthy of belief, she has consistently taught that they're in fact not necessary for salvation. So, you see, it, it's, the Church acknowledges them, and brings them in and introduces them into her worship but she also wants to give a clear message that if someone doesn't want to believe in the message of Our Lady of Fatima they're not obliged to if someone doesn't want to believe in the message of Our Lady of Guadalupe they don't have to same with Our Lady of Lourdes Our Lady of Lourdes appeared in 1858 in 1854 though the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was declared by the church so the private revelation confirmed what we already knew. In the the case of Our Lady of Fatima, 1917, I mean, she warned about the evils of communism, the importance of, of, of uh, or the evil that that will bring, the importance of prayer and fasting. Anything new? No. Our Lady of Guadalupe, the importance and sanctity of human life. Did the Church not already know that? She did. So just an interesting little uh, little thing there, that she acknowledges these sources of private peace that have come to us through private revelation, but she gives them the lowest rank in terms of that, because she wants us to, to remember that revelation comes to us, definitive revelation, through scripture and tradition. Which leaves a, a question, then why does God bother in private revelation? Why does he, why do these genuine things? I believe, this is my personal opinion, because human beings frequently private revelation are meant to lead us back to divine revelation. And why does God tend to reveal himself through extraordinary means? Because the ordinary means is falling on deaf ears. And so we need the louder volume, we need the spectacular fireworks, just for a moment, just to wake us up, shock us, and bring us back, now plug us back into where we should be, and then continue along the way. Uh, you might say the... Uh, the Feast of the Sacred Heart came from a private revelation. And that's a solemnity. And because it was already such a central teaching, though, of the Gospel. Of the Gospel. And, you know, in the heyday, the Feast of the Sacred Heart, it had an eight-day feast, an octave. Now in the Church, we only have uh, two feasts with an octave, namely Christmas and Easter. And I think rightly so. They, they should be the highest feasts and honoured. Because if you had other octave feasts, then what do you give to Christmas and Easter? Maybe a 15-day feast or something like that. But Corpus Christi, for example, was also a feast that had eight days. And that's an extraordinary feast as well. We just celebrated that last, last uh, Sunday. I think I am there. I, I, I will leave it there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Mark de Battista. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.